1: Hello to all fans of smart and reasoned argument. I'm John Donvan, host and moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates, with our first ever at-home debate, by which I mean I'm home, you're home, and the debaters you're going to be hearing from in a couple of minutes, they are home also, and all because of a virus known as COVID-19. And this virus, it is harming many of us. But it's also dividing most of us over how we view and grade the White House for its response to the threat so far. And one of the questions that has caused a division of opinion concerns a law that most of us probably never heard of before this, the Defense Production Act. And that's a law that's been around since Harry Truman was in the White House. And it gives the president extraordinary powers to force private companies to manufacture and sell to the government what the government says it needs in order to guarantee national security. Like the time during World War II under a predecessor law, uh, when General Motors stopped making cars and began turning out Jeeps and tanks instead because the government told it that's what it was expected to do. Only now what's needed are ventilators and face masks, both in Short supply, as I'm sure you've heard. So given that shortage and given the manufacturing potential of American firms to fill it, and given the power that he has to make that happen, has President Trump used the Defense Production Act well and wisely or not? On that question, we have two experts with clashing views, which gives us, we think, the makings of a debate. So let's have it. Yes or no to this statement. The Defense Production Act is being underutilized. As always, our debate will go in three rounds, and then you, our at-home audience, will decide who wins. We're going to have you cast two votes, one before you hear the arguments, which will happen in just a second from now, and the other one after the debaters have made their cases. The side that sways the most mind is the side that wins. So to those of you listening by podcast, let's get to your first vote. We'd like you to stop listening, and then wherever you are and whenever you're listening to this, we want you to go to our website, iq2us.org. That's iq2us.org. And click on the debate that says the Defense Production Act is being underutilized, and cast your first vote for that debate. So go ahead and vote. We'll wait for you. And then come back. Again, if you're listening to us on podcast, you can find the link to vote right there in your show notes. So let's meet our debaters. Uh, Arguing for the resolution, the Defense Production Act is being underutilized. I want to welcome to Intelligence Squared, Margaret O'Mara. Margaret, thanks for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me, John.
1: And Margaret, uh, you are a professor and scholar of history. You have a focus on the history of the American tech industry. You are also an opinion writer for the New York Times, and your new book is called The Code Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. It's great to have you here.
2: Thanks so much.
1: And now, arguing against the resolution, which again is the Defense Production Act, is being underutilized. I want to welcome Thomas Bohr. Thomas, welcome to Intelligence Squared.
3: Thank you very much, John.
1: So, Thomas, you are a director of the Heritage Foundation Center for National Defense. Before that, you served 36 years in the U.S. Army. You are a lieutenant general. You are also one of the foremost uniformed experts in weapons of mass destruction that included chemical and biological and radiological and nuclear weapons. A lot of expertise there. Thanks so much for joining us, Thomas.
3: Happy to be here.
1: So a reminder, if you are listening to this by podcast, and you haven't yet cast your pre-debate vote, it's time to do so by going online to iq2us.org, or if you check the show notes, if you're listening on podcast, you'll find a link to do that there. So let's move on to our debate. Our debate goes in three rounds. Round one will be opening statements by each debater in turn. And here to make her opening statement in support of the resolution, the Defense Production Act is being underutilized, is historian Margaret O'Mara. Margaret the floor is yours.
2: Thank you, John. Yes, I'd like to make the argument for why I believe the DPA is being underutilized at this moment of national and global emergency. The DPA itself was conceived in an emergency. Um, It has been used since to address both Uh, national emergencies. And also it has been used routinely, not just hundreds, but thousands and hundreds of thousands of times. Um, It has been an integral way for uh, for the way presidents, presidential administrations of both parties since 1950 have done business and ensured the nation's security. The DPA came out of the Korean War, this moment of high tension, um, global tension. In 19, of 1950, tanks roll across the 38th parallel. And um, two months later, Harry Truman announces that he uh, gives a rationale for a defense production act that essentially puts the U.S. on wartime footing. And let me just quote Harry Truman to kind of show what the stakes were that, that was conceived this act. He says, at, um, as he announces that the danger the free world faces is so great. This is in September 1950 is so great that we cannot be satisfied with less than an all-out effort by everyone. We have not given up our goal of a better life for every citizen in this great country of ours. But for the time being, we have to make absolutely sure that our economy turns out the guns, the planes, the tanks, the other supplies which are needed to protect the world from the threat of communist domination. Now, the threat right now is quite different, but the stakes are also high um, in terms of American health, American economic security and world security. This is not just an American crisis, it is a global one. And so the DPA is this very powerful tool that presidents have used ever since. And what it does is it's a prime example of how the U.S. government has done business really since 1789, which has been working with the private sector, encouraging, subsidizing, um, regulating, um, but also providing incentives for this public sector to work with the government on issues. of national importance. The DPA is not a nationalization of industry. Instead, it gives the president and his administration's power to tell suppliers that if they're building, if they're, manufacturing something of concern to national security. They must put some aside for national use and national purposes. Uh, For example, not sell all of their supplies of masks overseas. Um, And also, it creates very robust incentives for businesses to get in the business of supplying emergency supplies for the U.S. government. Um, It is very much in keeping with the way that the U.S. government has done defense production and other types of public-private cooperation since the 19 um, and I want to uh, give a, as an example another, another quote from um, Roosevelt aide Henry Stimson, cabinet member, um, say, a voice from World War II, who, in talking about the World War II mobilization, which was the model for the DPA, notes, if you're going to try to go to war or prepare for war in a capitalist country, you have to got to let business make money out of the process or business won't work. And so this is another very important piece of the DPA. The DPA is not telling businesses they can't make money and they can't do business. It is creating incentives and creating opportunities for businesses to continue to do what they should do, um, but also to give them incentives to contribute to national security and to work to address a national emergency. I think that this moment is unlike 1950, But it is very similar in the stakes. This is not a a time where we need to build armaments, but it is a time when it's a different sort of supply chain that needs to be mobilized. And the president has the power. This is a tool in his arsenal. It is also one that is often used. This is not a, a departure from form. And I'll leave it there. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Margaret. And I want to now turn the floor over to your opponent in this debate. And again, to remind members of the audience that both of these debaters are trying to persuade you to vote for their side of the argument. And you can do that by going to iq2us.org. Margaret's opponent is Thomas Spohr, a, a retired lieutenant general with 36 years experience in the military. He will be arguing against the resolution the Defense Production Act is being underutilized. Thomas, the floor
3: is yours. Thank you very much, John, and I appreciate the opportunity. I argue the Defense Production Act is being appropriately and effectively used. The facts show that a broader and more vigorous use of the DPA would actually detract from the overall effort to respond to the COVID crisis by interfering in a complex system of free market enterprise, which is already mobilized and is largely operating well, needing just an occasional course correction. My argument rests on three points. First, the federal government was not and still is not prepared to knowledgeably direct the breadth of American industry using the Defense Production Act. Indeed, an an immediate effort to jump in and use the DPA to direct American industrial efforts would actually hamper the ongoing effort. It took 18 months for this country to mobilize during World War II. We only have weeks for this crisis. Further, in a crisis, it's best to capitalize on your strengths. And while Washington, D.C. excels in arguments and policy and regulations, it's miserable at actually directing individual actions. Even in World War II, as Professor Omara mentioned, the United States relied on voluntary free markets to get the goods and the the materials it needed. It did not compel, it did not direct, rather it encouraged and incentivized. Well, this doesn't mean that the federal government should sit on the sidelines in this crisis. It has a critical role to play in in information sharing and adjudication. And when they see a situation where maybe a state is bidding against another or somebody's hoarding something, they absolutely should step in. But it doesn't require the DPA to adjudicate those types of problems. Second, I would argue American industry is already mobilizing. They continue to respond to meet this challenge without being directed by the federal government using the DPA as a hammer. Nobody wants this crisis to end more than American industry, they're losing billions. But rather than waiting, American industry is conducting one of the largest voluntary mobilization efforts in our nation's history. America is going big, only it's being driven by market need, innovation and patriotism versus government order and edict. In the last month alone, hundreds of companies, without being told, have looked inward and asked themselves, how can they contribute? You see in the news every day companies making face masks hand sanitizer, ventilators, and other items that they weren't making even days ago, Hanes underwear making face masks, Bacardi making hand sanitizer. There are over 8,000 companies in the United States who have shifted their production lines voluntarily to the COVID response. Why? Maybe they saw a profit. Maybe they saw a way to contribute or both. Either way, it's best for America. Third and finally, the federal government has indeed used the DPA, but as sparingly and has leveraged to persuade and encourage American business. And that's the right level. Within a few days of invoking the DPA, they used it to direct 3M to make masks. They used it to ge- uh, direct General Motors to start ventilators. They intend to use the act by exception, but that's appropriate. There are 6,000 hospitals in this country, thousands of business Free markets connect those customers and clients best. That's what I'm seeing today, and that's what happened in World War II. The DPA is an important tool, and the administration is using it wisely but sparingly, and a broader use would, in fact, detract from the current efforts.
1: Thank you, Thomas Bohr. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. We'll be right back with more on the Defense Production Act. This is a special at-home debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. Is the Defense Production Act being underutilized? Let's get back to the discussion. Now we move on to round two, and round two is where the debaters address one another directly, and they also take questions from me and from uh, you in our audience. Uh, Some of you have already submitted questions, and we will be coming to those. But just to summarize some of the points— that have been brought out in the opening statements. On the resolution, we heard uh, Margaret Amara, who is arguing that the the Defense Production Act is being underutilized, that we are in a situation of extreme emergency comparable to the time period in the 1950s uh, in the fight against communism, particularly with the looming Korean War when the uh, act first came into existence, that this is a national emergency, that big steps are needed. But she also points out that... Invocation of the Act is actually not that big a deal. It's being uh, used constantly over the last 50 years, hundreds of thousands of times, to bring about um, a supply chain that the essentially the U.S. military has needed and that it has not uh, threatened uh, the economy, it has not demonstrated an inefficiency on the part of the government. But this time the stakes are so high that uh, it in all ways calls for invocation of the act on a very big way, and a very big scale, bigger than she feels than the Trump administration has been willing to go so far. Arguing against the resolution, Thomas Spohr, uh, his, his point of view is that the act, having been invoked, is being used sparingly and that that is about the right amount. It is being used appropriately. He has a concern that the government getting involved in more significant ways uh, would lead to a situation where the government would introduce inefficiencies that I think he's saying the government is very good at, or maybe it should be bad at, that a government cannot, uh, cannot direct industry successfully, that it's miserable at local decision-making, and that the situation should be voluntary. And in fact, on a voluntary basis, we are seeing firms stepping up and trying to find ways to contribute to filling the gaps that are uh, in front of us in this emergency health situation. So I want to dig into some of what the two of you are saying. In a lot of ways, I think I see a lot of overlap and shared opinion between the two of you, but there are some differences. And I want to start by going back to you, Margaret, and taking, taking to you Essentially, uh, Thomas's point that this that, that the the quite uh, uh, moderated use of the Defense Production Act so far is about right. And your argument since it's being underutilized means there needs to be more use of it. So more where, more how? What would you want to see happening?
2: Well, I I would take, um, you know, this. I think in this case, the sparing use, this is not the time for the sparing use of the DPA. And here's why. It has been extraordinary what American citizens and businesses have done. It's inspiring what what people have done, what the sacrifices that have been made thus far for the collective good of the country. And that includes businesses that have been mobilizing voluntarily to switch their production chains. And, And similarly to what happened during World War II, but during World War II and after, there had to be, it couldn't just be voluntary. I think that when you have a sparing application of the DPA and relying on the goodwill and the volunteerism, you don't get the level of coordination that you need. And this is clearly what has been missing in the response to this crisis. We need national level coordination. So you don't get instances where different states and localities are out, trying to outbid each other for essential supplies. And the thing is, is that the U.S. government, and particularly the U.S. military, is darn good at coordination and mobilization. Um, we have that capacity.
1: Let me jump, bring Tom into the conversation at that point, uh, because, Tom, in your opening statement, you said the U.S. government is not so good at it, but Margaret is saying the part of the U.S. government that is the military, which you came from, is actually very good at it. What about that?
3: Yeah. So the United States military has a lot of discipline, a lot of organization, and and that's useful in a crisis. And so I guess what I would say is uh, you've talked about the need for coordination, and I agree there needs to be a coordinated effort. Uh, There doesn't need to be compellence though. And there's a difference between compelling something to do to do something and coordinating. And I think there's a clear role for the federal government to coordinate efforts among uh, businesses and clients like states and hospitals, That does not mean that they have to be compelled. And that's what the Defense Production Act is, is and direction versus informal coordination and talking about where is the need greatest. And I think this country was set up and and has run well using voluntary methods, connecting free market customers and producers. And And I don't think in this time of crisis that we ought to depart from that. Uh, Tradition.
1: So, Margaret, what I hear there from Thomas is 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 some faith in some faith in private industry to figure this out and also to do the right thing. Um, Part one, figuring it out. Do you do you have confidence in that? I mean, I would assume not because you're you're suggesting there's a need for external direction
2: yeah I think it's really difficult for a private industry to figure it out look, I study the tech industry um, um, whose largest companies are very good at operating at scale, but we're even seeing um you know a company like Amazon, for example, that has been you know, legendary for its ability to deliver products quickly and 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 have everything in the in their store at all times is now um, overwhelmed by the scale of this crisis. And I think there's a bit of a sort of the the story of the blind man and the elephant. Right, you, the the advantage that the federal government has and um, is this ability to see all the you know a capacity to see all the different moving parts and 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 direct them accordingly. If you have for all of the you know efforts of and you have companies you know i'm just again singling out this the tech industry alone you have you know microsoft doing massive efforts to source masks and and other supplies and ventilators you have apple you have salesforce they're you know mark benioff the ceo of salesforce is posting pictures on twitter of these deliveries of these you know big big uh, truckloads of things to hospitals but it's happening It's still at a micro level that as big as our tech giants are or our biggest companies are, GM, they are not at the, you know, they're not at the scale of the federal government. Uh, You know, one of the ways the federal government works, and I think this is part of the secret to the American entrepreneurial uh, magic, is that it often operates as a government out of sight. It is doing work. It is incentivizing, working with the private sectors in ways that we don't really see, in ways that may might seem voluntary. Um, they, they kind of operate the, the the place between voluntary and coercive, but I wouldn't say that it's been this light hand. I mean, and, and this extends beyond, you know, further back in time, going back to the construction of the Erie Canal and the construction of the Transcontinental Railroad and all sorts of other things from the nation's founding forward that really built this nation and created capacity um, have been these public-private partnerships that have been more than just hey, private industry, this would be a nice thing for you to do. Why don't you do it?
1: Tom, we, we, have, the, we have the episode where already the White House objected when 3M was going to ship some of its uh, face masks to a, a foreign customer, Canada, and they were told not to. Does that seem to you, in terms of sparing use, does that seem to you an appropriate or inappropriate intervention by the government in the way 3M does business in this situation?
3: Yeah. And so, I, you know, I don't want to get into whether that was the right call because that is a, a, a big issue. But I think, you know, so in that case, they used the Defense Production Act. They said, don't do that. And they're telling companies that are overseas, ship your products to the United States. And so it's a an America first kind of uh, idea. That at least is a sparing use of the Defense Production Act. And it serves as an example. And that's the part I liked about it the most. The administration also singled out General Motors very early on and told them, hey, Start making ventilators as fast as you can, and they, in fact, did ramp up their production. They didn't need to tell the entire industry to ramp up. Once, uh, once everybody in the industry saw what was happening to General Motors, they all got on board quickly, and that's what I, that's what I liked about it. I call it the Ned Stark effect. When you cut off somebody's head and put it on a pike, people get that message, and that's that's kind of what happened here. People weren't sure which way to go. Then they figured out. Uh, the administration was serious, and from that uh, that point on, I think everybody has been much more responsive. That's and so they haven't had to call. Yeah, yeah they I haven't mean, had to use the DPA because people know what can happen if they if they don't play ball.
1: So that's very interesting. And to those who are not Game of Thrones fans, Ned Stark was a much beloved character who's had who was beheaded, and as pointed out, his head was put on a pike to, as a warning to alls. But Mar- I want to take that back to Margaret. So Margaret, um, this goes to. Thomas is opening that a sparing and incisive use of the DPA mean, is the best way because you can send messages to sort of uh, encourage voluntary efforts instead, rather than having to go company by company and telling them what to do. Support It supports his argument that just a little bit is okay. What about that?
2: Well, I think this goes to, you know, the substance of the DPA itself and what it does and doesn't do. And like um, many other laws in America, Programs like it in American history—it's kind of this combination of carrot and stick. Um, again, it was modeled on the War Powers Act of the that the, the Roosevelt administration, Roosevelt and Truman used during World War II, um, which were a combination of "you gotta do this," okay, Henry Ford, stop making passenger cars; you're making jeeps now, um, or you're making airplanes. <laughs> um, but also, um, it, it also a, also a lot of incentives. You know, we're going to build the factory for you, and we're going to be your Customer and we're going to guarantee we're going to buy these from you, and so I think that's you know that the concerns about overuse of the DTPA um, are kind of drawn from a, a not quite realizing that it's it's a very powerful tool, but it also is one that isn't about nationalization of industry. And again, I think scale has been part of our problem here, and coordination at a national level for a national problem, and this is. Um, you know, look, COVID nineteen is touching every state and region. It's not something where you have a, um, you know, a terrorist attack that just affects two or three cities, for example, as we as ex- was experienced in two thousand one. You have something where the 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 pain that the danger is everywhere. That's and it's comparable to, um, it, you know, where we where we do need to have a a national level approach that is. You know, yes, I and I like I'm a Game of Thrones fan too, and I think the Ned Stark example is a good one, and that is one of the things the president and his administration can do, but it is part of a larger array of powers, um, and ways in which the president and his administration can work with industry to address this crisis.
1: Tom, do you have a response to that? Um, or do you, yeah, you, uh, yeah go ahead, yeah.
3: No, I mean, I just, you know, the scale and scope of this issue is so big that unfortunately, you know, I worked in the federal government, the army for 36 years and the federal government has got great civil servants in it. At the start of this crisis, they had no idea who makes ventilators, who makes masks, who makes hand sanitizer. And so these are people that on their normal daily lives make laws and regulations and advise Congress and the president they don't have a handle on American industry. And so for them to go from a, a standing, standing stop, essentially, to, you know, the calls for the president to start using the DPA started almost the day he announced he was invoking it. And I just think it's extraordinarily unrealistic to think that people whose day jobs are have nothing to do with masks and ventilators, the next day will start picking up the phone and and barking out orders to the American industry. And when they find a problem, like General Motors, who they did not think was responding, you know, they, they shot them in the head. But uh, I just don't think a wider and broader use, th- these supply chains, these hospitals, they already had well-developed ways of getting their masks and their gowns and their uh, face masks. To, to interfere with that before you fully understand the ecosystem, I just think would have been the wrong course of action.
1: Margaret, could you give an example of... Of a potential use that you think should have been made by this point, maybe targeted to a specific sector, a p- specific company for a specific need that where you think that the act should have been, you know, used used fully, but hasn't yet?
2: Mm-hmm. I think one place where it it, it would really be useful and, I, and, and you know, would have been useful before now, but particularly useful now, is in the, um, the components of what makes a COVID-19 test. Um, what the u s really needs is we need universal testing we we need much more testing than we have, um, and that the dPA could be invoked not just for to get the nasal swabs and the reagents, which again, and and I should point out that one of the challenges, and this is something that the Defense Department and FEMA and other agencies that use the DPA routinely already encounter, but one of the challenges that, say, Harry Truman and Dwight Eisenhower didn't have to such a degree is that the supply chains are globalized. So we do, you know, part of the problem here is we have essential material that is you know coming hmm. from northern italy or china right but where the
1: dpa does not reach nonetheless
2: no. i think that it points to um you know there are there still are plenty of manufacturers here who who yes would have to switch gears um in some cases or have um aligned products you know the dpa does a couple of things one it tells people who are already making something say an n95 mask To make them for a national purpose or to sell them within the U.S. and not to Canada or et cetera, et cetera. The DPA really kind of created the military industrial complex (laughs) of the the 1950s and beyond. It becomes this, this vehicle for new lines of procurement to to contract with industry, to build things that they aren't already building. But again, not telling them, stop doing what you're doing. It's creating an opportunity to say, hey, we need all these things. Are you, are you willing and, and able to do it? And, and we are seeing industries do that. But I think testing would be a great example where you not only would have the, not only the components of a test itself, but also could you, uh, could the DPA be used to work with a company that is very good at logistics and, um, at, you know, say Amazon, for example, to to have testing centers everywhere, or you know, I'm just I'm just pulling this out of the hat. But I think there's a lot of there are a lot of creative ways it can be used.
1: I I, I want to go to some questions from our audience in just a moment. But before we do, we were having a conversation inside uh, Intelligence Squared about the fact that the term Defense Defense Production Act suggests war, and it was founded with war in mind, and now it's being applied to a non-war. Emergency situation, and Tom, what I want to ask you about that is: Do you consider this an emergency situation equivalent to war in terms of its severity and its urgency? Um, and if you would, do do you support the use of the DPA in times of actual war, or not? Do you have the same concerns that you have in this situation? And if if you would apply it to, to war, but the answer to that is yes, I'd be curious to know why it's different in this situation.
3: So I, I don't. I want to be clear. I I support the use of the DPA. I think it's appropriate. The president invoked it for this emergency, and I and they are using it. I just argue against a broader use. But I think it's a a wonderful tool. Uh, it has been used fairly recently in a war. They used the Defense Production Act around two thousand and three or four. When they figured out they needed some of these uh, mine-protected ambush vehicles in Iraq, and so the soldiers were being killed, this required a major retool of U.S. industry. Uh, they went to seven uh, essentially truck manufacturers and said, "Start making MRAPS today." That's uh, a it's a perfect. Can I yeah, can, can I jump
1: in because I, I may have conf- I may have confused with the question, and what I'm really asking is, given the example that you just used, uh, a situation of armed conflict. Are you comfortable with more leeway in the use of the DPA in a time of armed conflict as opposed to its use now when we're talking about manufacturing, not weapons, but, uh, but, but, but you know, protective gowns and face masks?
3: I don't really distinguish between a national emergency uh, and war. I think the act has, has great utility in both, there have some, been some broadening of the Defense Production Act into energy security, some other areas that I don't think is useful, but that we're not in that situation today. And so they have used, the, the federal government has used the Defense Production Act for hurricanes, for Hurricane Katrina. They got mobile homes being built like crazy and, and other items of uh, supplies. So I think it's perfectly useful and acceptable. Uh, and I don't make any distinguish between a war and what we're using it for right now.
1: Thomas Spohr, Director of Heritage Foundation Center for National Defense, arguing against this resolution, the Defense Production Act is being underutilized. More from this special Intelligence Squared U.S. at-home debate when we return. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Historian and professor at the University of Washington, Margaret O'Mara, is debating in support of this resolution, arguing against is retired U.S. Army Lieutenant General Thomas Spohr, who is now director of the Center for National Defense at the Heritage Foundation. We're now in round two of this special at-home debate, meaning I'm at home, Tom and Margaret are at their homes, and you, our audience, I'm hoping you're at home too. In this round, debaters take questions from me and from listeners at our website, IQ2US.org. That's right, our at home audience sent in a handful of questions for our debaters. You're going to be hearing those in just a second. But before that, I want to let you know that in the future, we would love to hear from you because we're going to be hosting a range of debates in the next several weeks. Topics like whether we're now living through the end of globalization. We're going to be asking whether China is going to emerge from this pandemic stronger and whether gene editing could be a solution to this disease. To have your voice heard on these topics, and I mean literally heard, visit us online and sign up for our mailing list. We would love to hear from you. Okay, back to audience questions on this resolution. The Defense Production Act is being underutilized. I'd like to go to some audience questions now, and there's uh, one that came in from Portland, Oregon, from Allie. She asks, given that states have been left to bid against each other for medical supplies, are there any statutory guarantees regarding equitable or fair distribution of supplies produced under the Act? Margaret, any knowledge on that That is a
2: great question. I don't know. Tom, do you know? <laughs> I, I don't know.
3: Well, no, it 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 really defers to the executive, the president, yeah. to kind of decide what, to do what he does best. And I would just add that I don't think the distribution of supplies should be fair or equitable. They should be, you know, so right now we should be sending an extraordinary amount of supplies to New York City and the other hotspots and other places like Montana, where there's just a few, they should be mm-hmm. just getting by. And so I think we, we're not. We're not seeking a fair and equi- equitable uh, distribution of supplies.
2: I would agree on that.
1: Our next question comes from Daniel, who is in Tallahassee, Florida. Daniel asks: If Trump does fully utilize the Defense Production Act, is he strengthening the case for socialism, and is that a bad thing for the U.S. healthcare system's failures? Margaret, you already said the DPA is not nationalization, but. I think Daniel's asking a question that is on a lot of people's minds. Is it is it a step towards nationalization? Mm-hmm. Does it so violate the tenets of free enterprise that it's a step yeah. towards socialism?
2: Um, well, I guess I would turn back to Dwight Eisenhower, who was a proud capitalist, <laughs> definitely not a socialist, um, conservative Republican, um, who was— um, really saw the had a very pragmatic sense of you know this is a tool the the DPA and the the us government's working with industry for defense purposes and at the time of Eisenhower's era it was for you know strictly for national security purposes that uh, military purposes was something that was necessary that was that needed to be structured in a way that did not interferes so much in the workings of the private market and private industry so that it squashed that and effectively nationalized or socialized industry. And so the DPA actually started off with some pretty bold, expansive um, provisions in it that had to do with wage and price controls, and um, which were instilled in 1950 in the Truman era, in part because of anxiety about the return of the Great Depression after the end of World War II—that that there were, you know, they wanted to make sure that the U.S. economy was being well served and that wages were not going to be depressed and inflation would not run rampant. Eisenhower rolled those back, and and so the DPA, as it stands, has kind of had this again. It's expansive, but it also has guardrails. It's it.
1: It's a, it's, it's a lot less socialist sounding than it used to less, be. It's a lot less, and
2: it's, it's yeah, it, I think to call it a step towards socialism is, an, is a misread of it.
1: Well, Tom, what do you think on that question?
3: I don't know about socialism, but I would say that a wider and broader use of the Defense Production Act kind of goes against their tradition and what has made our country so successful. And so our our country has really uh, been founded on entrepreneurship and innovation and people figuring out how they can make a better mousetrap and that type of thing. And so I think we are seeing that happening across the country. And so I, I would say not socialism, but, but a wider use of the DPA is not really our, you know, our hallmark of this country where, we, where customers and producers self-connect themselves in our system of free enterprise. And that's, what's, that's what helped us win World War II, and that's what made this country great.
1: Let's bring another questioner in. Tina from New Jersey. Tina addresses her question to you, Thomas, but I want to ask Margaret to answer it as well. The question...
2: If Mr. Spohr does not want the president to fully implement the powers of the Defense Production Act, would he be okay with each state doing so on their own through their police powers or eminent domain?
3: Well, I'm not saying I don't want the president to implement the Defense Production Act, just not more broadly than is what is required by the situation.
1: Can I jump in too? Yeah, Please. I want to be clear that you are not, uh, to all of our listeners, you have at no point said don't use the DPA. You are clearly not saying that. And sometimes the language and some shortcuts may suggest you are. So I want to, I want to emphasize that you are not saying don't use the DPA. But the question still has relevance, uh, if I can rephrase it, if you do not want the president to overutilize the DPA, would you be okay with each state doing its own version of it through police powers or eminent domain?
3: Yeah, I'm I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know whether even a governor would have the ability to commandeer an element of their industry. It's a specific power of the president. Maybe that would be found in some state law, but I think that'd be very counterproductive if, for example, I know 3M is headquartered in Minnesota, if all of a sudden the governor of Minnesota said, no, we're keeping all of our masks in Minnesota. I think that'd be an extraordinarily uh, bad call for his state and for the country.
1: I'm guessing, Margaret, you agree with that, since you're arguing for, for a national solution.
2: Yeah. And I think that it raises, you know, really important constitutional questions. Um, and this goes to the heart of federalism. I think we're really seeing, you know, one of the consequences of the Um, The current situation where we don't have strong national coordination of the supply chain is this test of federalism and where governors are exercising powers that, you know, they're sort of pushing the limits of they're trying to step up um, and 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 allying with one another, you know, the West Coast governors who have formed a coalition to um, to. To kind of collectively reopen the West Coast at the same time, same on the East Coast, um, and I think this is a real challenge. You know, that the presidential that the, the power of the presidency has enlarged over time. But if we go back to 1789 and George Washington, you know, the DPA is, uh, although it's a lot more than George Washington had in his arsenal, is, is very in line with the, you know, the core, you know, why the presidency exists and why we have a, a president's American presidency for things that states cannot do, that if the states did it alone, it would be counterproductive.
1: All right. Thanks, Tina, for your question. This one was sent in to us by Savannah in Seattle, Washington.
2: What are the other countries doing to ensure medical supplies are available? Is there another model we should be looking at?
1: Has either of you looked at what's happened in other countries where industries have the capability to produce these things and the government does or does not have the ability to command those firms to produce what's needed? You know, if we look at China, for example, the Chinese government owns most of the actual manufacturing so they can give orders right away that situation is not going to be reproduced in a lot of other places. But looking overseas, are we seeing something that works better than what we're doing right now with the DPA invoked and used to the degree that it is or is not?
2: Yeah, well, with the caveat that I'm a specialist in American history and American politics, but the great irony is that the U.S. used to be the best in the world at this sort of thing. Um, And and still, I think, has the capacity to do that. And for so long was the world leader and kind of leading the rest of the world and and responding to emergencies overseas very effectively. Um, I think one place to look at is is not China, as you observe, but Taiwan. Um, Taiwan has done a... Um, remarkable job and really a very preemptive job. I have um, friends who've been living in Taiwan during this pandemic and they describe what the testing regime and the taking your temperature every time you pass a doorway of anything, um, how that's been in place for so long and a real a system set up in a, again, an economy that is different than ours, but also not China. Um, I don't know if we have a, a perfect COMP elsewhere in the world. I think countries everywhere are struggling. Um, And part of the challenge, too, is the globalization of supply chains. The question also points to a bigger question that all of us must grapple with wherever we stand on the DPA, which is, or the use of the DPA, is that this is a global pandemic with a global supply chain, with global impacts. It, the U.S. is suffering, you know, is, is experiencing what it is because it's a globally connected society. You know, I hear, I'm here in Seattle, which was an original hotspot, in part because we have SeaTac Airport with all of these long haul flights coming in from all over the world. So we need to recognize that that is, and, and you know, an internationalism is something that came out of the crisis of World War II um, and the Cold War. Um, and I think we need to recognize that there, is, there are these interconnections and we are operating in, at a global scale, not just a national
1: one. Well, it certainly complicates it. And I, I want to bring the question back to Tom, where where Margaret said she doesn't think there's a perfect comp for or a perfect example of how we could be doing it differently. But do you agree? Have, do you see anything out there that serves as a model or less, a place where we can take lessons from?
3: I think the model on how this should be done can be found in the United States. I mean, when you saw the reports of the crisis in Bergamo in Italy You didn't see anything about a national Italian stockpile being sent to Bergamo or Lombardy to help with it. And that's because Italy doesn't have a national stockpile of ventilators. We, in fact, when this crisis kicked off, had at least 18,000 ventilators sitting in our national stockpile and tens of millions of masks. Now, we're going to look back and we're probably going to say that wasn't enough. And that's probably correct. I wasn't really sure how medical equipment worked, so I looked it up. And the the requirement is that employers are supposed to provide their employees the necessary protective equipment for whatever their job is, which means that United States hospitals are supposed to have a sufficient stock of protective equipment uh, to provide their employees. And so is it easy to keep that number of supplies on hand in an average U.S. hospital? I'm sure not. I think most U.S. hospitals are operating right on the cusp of insolvency or, or profitability. But Nevertheless, I think if you're looking for an example... I think the United States is about the best you can find in terms of a a country that responded well to this crisis.
1: All right. I want to thank uh, our audience members for their questions. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our resolution is the Defense Production Act is being underutilized. Now we move on to round three. And round three is where each debater briefly makes a closing statement, once again, to persuade you to vote for their position on this resolution. Margaret Amaro, will go first, arguing for the resolution. Margaret, the floor is yours.
2: The president is underutilizing the Defense Production Act, and here is why. Over the course of the last hour, we have talked about how it has been used in the past, not just in times of dire national emergency, but as a almost routine process of government that the Defense Department chiefly, but other agencies too, have statutory authority to work with industry to address supply shortages and demands for national security needs. Those national security needs originally were just for military purposes. They have been expanded to include natural disasters and public health crises just like this one. This is a crisis that the DPA was designed for. And yes, the president has invoked it. Yes, he is using it. But as my opponent observed, he is using it sparingly. This is not the time for sparing use of the DPA. The DPA is something that does not present a danger for, of nationalization of industry. It is not a step towards socialism. It is a tool in keeping with the way that this country has been made great. The entrepreneurial spirit of this country has been the product of not just the workings of the free market, but also the workings of governments, the federal government, national and local, working with industry to encourage, to incent, to subsidize, to encourage the private sector to work with the public for the common good. I hope that you will agree that it is very important. This is a moment when the DPA must be used to its fullest extent. This is a time of crisis on par with other crises we have faced, and we will get through this by all working together.
1: Thank you, Margaret Amara. And our next and final speaker, Thomas Spohr, will be arguing against the, resolution, the- Defense Production Act has been underutilized. Here, one more time, Thomas Spohr, expert in national defense policy at the Heritage Foundation.
3: I do think a clear-eyed assessment of the situation reveals that the administration's use of the DPA, which I think all of us agree has been sparing, is indeed appropriate. The federal government provides many roles in our system, some of them very well. One of them it does not do well is substituting edicts for markets. Had the government intervened with the DPA, especially before they understood the dynamics, it's likely the overall response would have been harmed. American industry, to its credit, is responding in a way that no one could have imagined, and is doing so voluntarily. Over the course of the last month, we've seen companies like Ford and Toyota volunteer to partner with medical companies to make ventilators. Honeywell, 3M, MyPillow, Hanes, and others making millions of masks. Anheuser-Busch and Bacardi making hand sanitizer. The list goes on and on. No central office dictating orders from Washington, D.C., could do a better job of mobilizing U.S. industry. As the book Freedom's Forge: The Story of America's Industrial Mobilization in World War II points out, it was no coincidence that no other wartime economy depended more on free enterprise than America's, and that none produced more of everything in quality and quantity. So again, ladies and gentlemen, the correct vote is to vote against the resolution that the Defense Production Act is being underutilized.
1: Thank you, Thomas Bohr, and thank you, Margaret Amara. And I want to point out to both of you that in our normal, typical debates when we're in front of a live audience, this is the point where the audience votes a second time and we declare a winner. But given that we are <laughs> we are living through an era of delayed gratification, uh, <laughs> the, the result will be a, a kind of rolling online result as people listen to this debate over the next days and weeks. Uh, I'll explain one more time how to do that. But first, I want to release the two of you with our great gratitude from Intelligence Squared, both for your finding the time And the fact that both of you lived up to the aspirations of Intelligence Squared, which is to present uh, on some tough topics, a civil, informative conversation. You both came here in that spirit, and you certainly delivered. So, uh, Thomas and Margaret, one last time, thank you so much for joining us. Thank
2: you for having us. Thank you, John.
1: And we are now asking you, our listeners, one more time to tell us who best persuaded you to their point of view. Again, go to iq2us.org for your second post-debate vote. That's iq2us.org. the number two, US.org. Again, we're not going to be able to crown our victor as I speak here now, but check into the website and you'll see how the public's opinion has been swayed one way or the other over time. Before you go, I want to give you a heads up of what to expect in the weeks and months ahead. Intelligence Squared is committed to bringing thoughtful debates to you all through everything we're going through right now, and we're going to continue doing so. We do have some exciting programming coming your way, including virtual debates on globalization, voting and democracy, gene editing, and much more. Also, we just launched a weekly newsletter that brings really interesting uh, and and insightful in-depth analysis of the debates that are shaping our world. This week, we got uh, an exclusive look at how Match.com users are adapting to dating in the digital world and we did that by going back to an alum, an alumna of Intelligence Squared, Helen Fisher. We we debated uh, the impact of online dating on romance uh, a while back. Helen was one of our debaters. Well, we caught up with her and also her debate opponent, Eric Kleinenberg, about that debate, and they talked with us now about how love is changing in the time of social distancing. So you can subscribe to that newsletter and and check out that article and that conversation by going again to IQ to us.org. I want to thank you for joining us. I want to thank everybody who took part. I want to thank our staff for making this happen. It's It's been complicated and it sure sounded simple and that's the way it should work. So from me, John Donvan, goodbye. Stay safe from Intelligence Squared U.S. Thank you for tuning in to this special at home episode of Intelligence Squared U.S. The debate you just heard was recorded live at home on April 17th, 2020. Our debates are generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Also, all at home, the Intelligence Squared U.S. team, Clea Connor, CEO, Amy Kraft is Chief of Staff, Shale Mara is Director of Editorial, Connor Kerfman is our Creative and Marketing Strategist, Jennifer Zelmer is Senior Researcher, Aaron Dalton is our Radio Producer, Robert Rosencrantz is our Chairman, and I'm your host, John Donvan. Thank you so much for joining us.